Today's reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 54, from verse 16 to 17. If you are using the Black Pew Bible, it can be found on page 524. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame, and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to work havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his words in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Over... Um the last several weeks, um, before Becky and I took a, a couple weeks to, to go um, see our family, we've been looking at some promises in the scripture, and I've entitled this series, The Rock, because these promises are things that you and I can build our life upon. Now, now The Rock all points to a person. The rock that we build our, our life on is the person and work of Jesus Christ, And today we're going to look at the rock of victory. Uh, And it's an incredibly important promise that we see in the scripture that I hope today it it will move from being something that you think in your mind to something that you believe in your heart and that you live in obedience to. Because God's word is living and is active and it's meant to, to, to take root deep within us and to be lived out in obedience and faith. And I hope today is going to be a day where you go, man, if that's true, then I want to do all that I can to follow the Lord, to obey him, and to live boldly for his purpose and his cause. So before we begin, I just want to ask us to pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray as we look at it today that you will help Help us to understand it, to see it in its context. Help us, Lord, not just to understand it, though, not just to read its words, but to believe in our heart that what you say is true and it is accomplished when we choose to live in obedience to your word. So, Lord, I ask that you would let me get out of the way, that you would speak. And Lord, that our hearts, our minds, our lives would be changed. And Lord, that we would become more and more of a people, of a bride that lives for your glory and your greatness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to start with this question. What would you do if you knew you could not fail? Is there within you a dream a prompting from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit, that is calling you to do something for his purpose, for his kingdom. And up until this point, you've been hesitant because of fear. Is there within you something that the Lord is prompting you to do that you just get, man, if I, if I really had enough faith to step out, if I, if I believed he would really be there with me, this is what I would do. I want you to grab a hold of that and ask the Lord to show you, first of all, is this from him? 
Because that dream needs to be something that honors him and is prompted from him. It's not self-promoting. And it needs to be empowered by the Lord. But it also needs to be a God-sized dream. Oftentimes, I think we, out of fear, attempt far too little for the Lord. And yet, when we recognize that he is victorious, he's defeated the greatest enemy of all, sin and death, we have nothing to fear. We should be bold about pursuing his God-sized dreams for your life and for my life. So what would you do to serve and honor God if you knew you could not fail? What would it be? Well, let me encourage you to get out your phone. You rarely hear a pastor say that during the middle of a sermon, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I've done it several weeks. I want you to open up your Bible app if you have one. If you don't, I want to encourage you to, to download Version or Olive Tree or any of several other Bible apps, and I want you to look for the verse that we just read um, um, from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54. Look that up in your heart language, Isaiah 54, 17. Highlight it and copy it. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to post it into your calendar for the next seven days so that it brings up a reminder of that verse and read it every single day. Read it as a prayer. Read it as a promise. Now, really what I'm doing is I'm trying to be subversive into helping you memorize Scripture. I hope I, some of you have probably noticed that. Um, I'll do whatever it takes to try to help you discover the power and the joy of not only reading God's word, but having it come to life within you. So I want to encourage you to put that in your phone so that it comes up every day this week and you read it and ask the Lord to help you to believe it. So now having, having done that, let me invite you to stand and we're going to say this verse together. It's up on the screens. This is God's promise for you and I. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Do you see how strongly God in his word states that? He's saying, this is my promise to you, so much so that I'm putting my name on it. I'm declaring that this is true. If it's true, we need to live like it's true. Thank you very much. God's promise is simply this. God is always victorious, therefore, I will not fail. That doesn't mean that we won't have setbacks. We won't have experienced things that may look like failure from our perspective or even from the perspective of others. But from God's perspective, when we are trusting in him and pursuing him in his strength, we cannot fail. Even the things that look like failure, we think we've used in this series, I've used Joseph as, a, as an example from the Old Testament many, many times. I'm sure that when he was sitting in prison because his brothers had sold him into slavery, he felt like a failure, but he wasn't. God had him right in the place where he needed to be to be transformed and to be shaped and molded into the person that was then going to be the one through whom he worked the deliverance and salvation of his people there in Egypt. 
in Christ, because he is always victorious, we cannot fail. God has staked his name and his reputation on it. And so therefore, God, first of all, is calling you and I to himself. He is inviting you and I to a life of intimacy with him through faith in Jesus Christ. And secondly, God is calling you to a purpose. Every single one of us, he has given a purpose. It is unique, it is God-sized, and it is incredibly important. Too often, what happens is, is we look at people in the scripture and we think they're not like us. Or we'll look at a, at a pastor or a speaker or a teacher or, or someone who's perhaps famous as a, as, a, as a believer and we think somehow they're different. They're not. God's calling for your life is just as important as anyone else on the planet who has ever lived. I hope you will begin to believe that. It is not the same calling. It's not the same purpose, but it is vitally important because God loves each and every one of his children and he has a plan for your life that is vital. That's what he wants us to know. Becky was doing some, um, some research this week and, and some study and, and, and she discovered in, in, in um, doing some of this research that many times people who experience panic attacks, because we were with uh, a particular relative that experienced a lot, of, a lot of different panic attacks this past week, and, and one of the things that has come up in research as, they, as they've discovered it is a common contributor to panic attacks is a person not believing that they have a purpose or not pursuing a purpose for their life. They're, in a sense, adrift. And God wants you to know that you have a purpose. He is calling you to a great purpose. And he gives us great promises in his word that he will bring victory to each and every believer. And he will bring vindication to us. That's what the scripture says. Every trial, every tragedy, every hurt, God will vindicate. No matter what you've been through, God says it will be worth it. When we can see the end of history, or as as I put it many times, if we knew what God knows, we would always want what God wants, and we would wait for God's timing. Even in the midst of the tragedies and difficulties. For the follower of Jesus Christ... None of those tragedies can ever destroy us. None of those trials that we walk through, even though they are incredibly difficult, none of them can overwhelm us. It may press hard against you, but it will not destroy you. The promise of the scripture is no weapon used against the servants of the Lord will ultimately succeed. And God is saying here that all will be vindicated. And I'm going I'm to define that word in a few minutes We often, though, wonder why God has allowed Satan so much freedom or what seems like so much freedom. We look at the suffering, the brokenness in the world, and and, and it causes us to question, you know, God, why didn't you just wipe out Satan when he disobeyed? We could ask the same question, God, why didn't you just wipe out humanity when they sinned and rebelled against you? God is a God who redeems everything 
And he will take even that which is broken and he will use it for his good. Look at, let's look at the, what this says here in this passage. The verse right before the promise says this, Isaiah 54, 16. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. The picture here is that of a blacksmith who is, a, um, who is working the fire, working the coals, and he's fanning it into a flame and, and causing incredible heat, enough so that the iron and the steel can melt so that a weapon is formed. And he uses that as a picture then to, dis, to say, see, I have also created the ravager to destroy. That's a picture of the enemy of Satan. It's saying I've created him for a purpose because he's actually using his rebellion as a way to, to cause heat that forms you and I as followers of his into a weapon, into an instrument that is fit for his hand. God is using even the rebellion of the enemy, of his enemy, to accomplish your good and my good. That's, what, that's why the New Testament in James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will build you towards perfection in Christ. He uses even the hard things for you and I to bring victory. God created Satan. Satan rebelled. But Satan has power, but it is limited. And God will ultimately be vindicated and Satan will be destroyed. Nothing is outside of God's sovereignty. Two weeks ago, Scott preached on that, about how we can rest in the fact that God is in control, in his strength, in his power. Even our failures, even our tragedies will be transformed. They will be redeemed. The sickness that you experience is not the end of you. The discouragement that weighs on your heart is there, but it has a purpose, and it is for just a season. It's a chapter. The brokenness that has torn your heart will heal. None of it shall succeed, for nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the promise that we have. Listen to how this promise is echoed in the New Testament. Uh, um, 2 Corinthians 4 you may want, this may be one you want to turn to. It'll also be on the screen. But it says this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Isn't that a great promise from God's word? He doesn't waste anything that we go through. God says that Jesus' life is in you, and that can never, ever, ever be destroyed. Um, he is being made manifest. It means he's being brought forth in your life and my life. He is living out his victory through us. The trial is temporary, but God's victory is eternal. That's the idea behind this verse in Isaiah 54, 17, where he says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Now, this passage is written specifically um, to God's people, Israel, 
but it is also written to us, to every believer who has placed their trust in God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a heritage. It's an inheritance. That means God's saying, this is what I have for you. I have this promise. Will you believe it? Will you live as if it's true? The word vindication that we see in here has a dual meaning. First of all, it means that God will balance the scales to show us that it has all been worth it. That's his promise. But it also means, in the scripture, it also means righteousness. In fact, if you, if you look down in the footnotes of your Bible for this verse, um, it will often say righteousness because that's another proper translation of the word from the original language. Our righteousness is from God. He alone supplies it through Jesus Christ. And his righteousness is what defeats every weapon that comes against us. He is victorious, and he invites us to stand in his victory with him. That's the promise of God's word. He promises that no weapon will prevail against his servants. We need to know that. We need to believe that. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And in the the original language in Hebrew, in which this is written, weapon means any tool or any instrument that is used against another person. Nothing will ultimately defeat us. That's God's promise. The truth is, Jesus Jesus has already won the war. Through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he proved that he is victorious. So the trials and the setbacks that we experience in this life are only temporary because he is fully victorious. Don't let the enemy trick you into thinking that just because the battle that you are in seems to be hard, that Jesus has not already won. He has. In fact, we need to remind ourselves continually of that. That's why the scripture in 2 Corinthians 10 says this, for though we walk in the flesh, in this body, We do not wage war according to the flesh, according to physical strength. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. God promises that no weapon will stand against you. But there's more to his promise. Did you see the the rest of the verse? It says that no words of accusation will prevail against his servants. Maybe you've gone through a a season at work or in your family or or just in, in some relationship where someone continually is accusing you of things that you have not done. Unjustly, they're bringing accusation against you over and over again. And you feel, man, like you're being you're being beaten up by these accusations. God's promise is that none of those will ultimately stand. Here's why. Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, he is our advocate. When the enemy brings accusation against you and me, if we have trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus, our advocate, says that is not true, for he and she is mine. We stand not in our righteousness, not in our accomplishment, but in his. So therefore, any accusation against us ultimately does not stand 
Because God sees you and me through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees you and I in purity and in Christ's righteousness, no matter what accusations may come against us. God's promise is that those who rise against you will not have the last word. 2 Thessalonians 1.6 affirms this, and it says that God will have the final say. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God says, I'm going to balance the scale. Right now, by all appearances, things may seem like it is way out of balance. If you picture a, a balanced scale, it may feel like there's so much coming against me. But God says, you haven't seen the end yet. I will prove my victory. Those who slander us will be silenced and proven conclusively to be an error and justly condemned. If you've experienced pain from others who oppose you and, and oppose God's will for your life and those who oppose God's blessing on your family, Isaiah says God is for you. He is with you. We are to stand strong and not let the accusations of the enemy penetrate our minds for God has told us that there is therefore no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. But we have to believe those words and live as if they're true. We are to live by the truth of Jesus' victory. And he says, no weapon formed against his servants will succeed. Now, to understand this passage and and to, to make sure that we apply it properly, we need to look, first of all, at the context of God's promise. God's promise is set in the scripture very strategically Because Isaiah 54, which is filled with incredible promises, and I want to encourage you this week to read through Isaiah 54, because it it is amazing what God promises us. But it follows right after Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is a passage that talks about the suffering servant of God. Here are some of the verses that it tells us about the suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. That's us and he shall prolong his days. The promise is that God took all of the penalty of sin that you and I deserved, and he placed it upon his son, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, in order to give us not only salvation, but his victory. It's set in context, and ultimately, that's what we need to remember. The victory isn't about you and I deserving it. 
It's about whether or not Jesus is worthy. We sang that song a few minutes ago that comes right out of Revelation chapter 5. And it's a picture of Jesus Christ where the question being asked amongst all the universe of all creation is who is worthy to open the scroll, to break its seal, and to bring forth the vindication of God, the completement of his plan. And the only person worthy in all of the world is Jesus Christ. He is victorious. And right now, we need to remember that he is on his throne. When we came in this morning, um, this chair was, was here on the middle of this piece of carpet, and, uh, and everyone thought it was my prop. I don't know why you thought it was my prop. I mean, it was, it was puzzling, but everyone thought it was. It wasn't. Just so you know, it just happened to be here, the Seventh-day Adventists. They're using props. I mean, it's It's awesome. Because props are incredibly powerful. But, but what I do want you to think about in this incredible chair that's up here is a reminder that Jesus Christ is on the throne right now. He is reigning. For years in my, in my office, I kept a chair um, that I kind of positioned in a weird place. Whenever people would come in, they would always kind of give me this weird look about this one chair that seemed to be just out of place. I had other chairs for people to sit in and, you know, a table that we would talk around, but I kept one chair in my office that was simply there as a reminder that God was with me. It it became a, a visual tool to help me as I prayed to remember he is right there, he's in control, and he's never gonna let me go. Jesus is on his throne. That's why we have victory. Isaiah 53 tells us of the cost, of the length that Jesus was willing to go in order to give us life and relationship with God and also to give us victory. But because he has gone so far, we need to read this promise. And the only way that we can truly declare the worth of Jesus Christ is to live as if we believe what he's promised us. This passage in Isaiah 53 and 54 has been used throughout history to propel people to accomplish unimaginable things. When they believed God's truth, as he promised in his word, and they said, God, you have a calling upon my life, and you have promised that we will not fail because you are victorious. They've used that to overcome incredible odds, incredibly difficult circumstances in pursuing what God called them to do. One of the great examples of this is William Carey. William Carey, 200 plus years ago, was a shoe repairman. Not a very glorious career when you're spending all your time, you know, on a little um, um, mold there, hammering people's shoes back together as they would walk on them. He wasn't anyone that anyone else would have paid any attention to, but God did. And God placed a calling upon William Carey's life. He was a very common man and an unlikely person to be the one God chose to birth the modern missions movement. But they did. And what prompted William Carey to leave his career of repairing shoes and instead to carry uh, the gospel boots of peace into the far lands of India from England 
were these verses. He believed that this was true, that Isaiah 54, 17 was a promise from God that he could count on. And and so against all difficulties and unimaginable circumstances, he got on board a ship and he sailed to India where he faced opposition, not just from those who didn't believe God, but from others who claimed to be Christians and followers of Christ. He faced incredible opposition, but he trusted in the promise. And he successfully took the good news of Jesus Christ to the peoples of India. And in following his example throughout the the past two centuries, thousands of individuals have been prompted by the pattern and faithfulness of William Carey to share the gospel with every people and tribe on the nation, on the planet Earth. God has a plan for your life. It is a big plan. Don't allow fear to keep you from following him. William read through Isaiah 54, and he believed it was true. In fact, in chapter 54, verse 2, this was part of what prompted him to to go into missions. It says, enlarge the place of your tent, Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people um, the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. You will not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. He believed the promises of God, even though all those around him told him he shouldn't go. Will you believe God's word and follow what he calls you to do? William Carey believed God's promise and he put it into action. And he began to challenge people to expect God to do great things and then dare to attempt great things for God. He called them to put their faith into practice to enlarge the place of God's tent and to take his promise to all peoples on the face of the earth. He believed that God would do exactly what he promised. And a shoe repairman became the catalyst for taking the gospel to India and to nations who had never, ever heard the name of Jesus Christ before. So what about you? What about me? Will we believe God's promises and live them? Or will we choose to stay right where we are spiritually? Please don't do that. God's promises are activated by faith. We are to believe God's promises because they are given for us. We are to expect God to do great things. He will come through you and um, he will work through you and you have his word on it. We are to dare to attempt great things for God in his strength. Therefore, we need to put our faith into action. Here's, I was thinking about this this week, and, um, and, and I realized that sometimes I just think in weird patterns, but that's how God made me. So you, you just have to deal with it. But I was thinking about the most, um, most familiar formula, scientific formula that, 
that there is on the, on the face of the planet from Albert Einstein, E equals MC squared, right? Does everybody know what that is? We got it up there. Okay, so energy equals mass um, times the speed of light squared, right? Tr- truth is, I have no clue what that means, okay? I'm just true confessions. I mean, I, I kind of get it a little bit, um, but it took someone way smarter than me to come up with that, and it takes people a lot smarter than me to really understand that. But I do see a beautiful parallel spiritually. I want you to think about the mass, okay? The mass is, you know, material. It's what God has already given to you and I as giftedness, as abilities, as passions. He, he's taken that. And then energy is our faith in and obedience to Jesus. This is our investment into kingdom causes. Without our expenditure of energy, nothing happens. And so we need to take our faith and our obedience, our energy, we place it into God, and then he takes that, and he uses your gifts, your abilities, your position and then, the, and then the real key to making it success is the next part, the seed, the speed of light, is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. By his strength, he takes our abilities and our faith and obedience, and he turns it into kingdom-producing results. That's God's E equals MC squared. And it's how he works in you and I. But the truth is, if there's no energy, if there's no faith and obedience put into action, nothing else happens. If we don't believe God's word and live as if it's true, there's no power. There's no accomplishment. So we need to dare to attempt great things for God in his strength and put our faith into bold action. Well, the context of of this passage of Scripture is that of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. It is his victory that we are to live out. But also, there's a completion in this of God's promise. Jesus is on the throne, and here's what the New Testament tells us about him. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is Jesus. That is why through him that we can say amen to God for his glory. Because every promise, every rock that we've looked at, the rock of of victory, the rock of power, um, the rock of of deliverance in times of temptation, they're all found in the person of Jesus Christ. They find their yes in him. Every promise of God to us is completed in the person of Jesus. Of Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. It's not a magic thing that you say at the end of a prayer. It is the only way that we access God and His promises. That's why I've often I've often encouraged you to pray backwards, to begin in Jesus' name, to recognize that that's how we come into His presence, and that's how we receive His promise. And I want you to think about this in light of the things we've already looked at, the promises we've examined in the scripture over the last several weeks. The promise one was, was this, God is always with me, therefore I will not fear. God's promise that he is with us even to the end of the age. 
Secondly, we looked at how God is always in control, therefore I will trust. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Nothing is outside of his control. Promise number three reminded us that God is always good. I will wait for him because what he has for us is better than what my impatience and sin prompts me to do. I will wait for him. God, promise number four was God will make a way, therefore I will stand true. He's already provided a way of escape from temptation and trial, and he promises to be with us and to give us exactly what we need when we need it in order to stand true and faithful in him. And what does God give us? He gives us himself. Galatians 2.20 is is a life verse for me where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's our promise. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And with that, we come to this fifth promise that God is always victorious Therefore, we will not fail. One day, Jesus Christ will descend from his throne. He will step back in, into to earth, into an active way, and he will bring forth the balance of scales. He will bring forth justice, and every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. If we believe that is true, that we should also believe every other promise that he gives us. Jesus has defeated the weapon of fear. He is always with us, as we saw in Deuteronomy 31.8. Jesus has defeated the weapon of doubt. He's in control, and therefore I will trust in him in accordance with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Jesus has defeated the weapon of despair. God is always good, therefore I will wait for him in Romans 8.28. Jesus has defeated the weapon of temptation. He will make a way so that we can stand true in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14. And he has defeated every weapon of the enemy. He is always victorious. Therefore, he will not fail. And since he will not fail, we cannot ultimately fail in him. In fact, Romans 16, 20 puts a period on it this way. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, under our feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's the promise of God's word. In Christ, in Christ being in us, he accomplishes these things for his honor and glory. But Jesus has to be living his life in us and through us, not us living our lives in pursuit just of his blessings. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's all about him. Unfortunately, what often keeps us from attempting great things for God is that our view of God is too small. A.W. Tozer wisely said this. He said, a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils 
And a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporary problems. We need to have a right view of who God is and believe that he is who he says he is and he will do what he has said he will do. And that brings us to the condition of God's promise. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. And the condition is there. We have to be a servant of the Lord. We have to say, God, my life belongs to you. What do you want to do with it? If you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, this promise does not yet apply to you. But his invitation does. He's inviting you to come to himself, to have a relationship with him, to know him. In fact, it's so beautiful because the very next chapter, after this incredible promise that we're given of of God saying, I will write every wrong, I will balance every scale, and you will not fail. Here's his invitation in Isaiah 55, and this is the calling of God's promise to you and I. It says this, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What he's saying is, you don't worry about whether you have anything because you don't. You can never deserve this. You can never earn it. I'm simply saying, come to me. Jesus right now is calling you and I, and he says, I want to fill your life with me, with my presence, with my righteousness, with my strength, with my ability, with my hope, with my peace. Will you come to me? Don't try to bring anything with you because it's not worth anything to begin with. All you need to do is simply call upon me. These words are echoed at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation where he says something very similar about living water where it says the spirit and the bride say come. God's invitation to each and every person here is simply come to Jesus today. The life that you're hoping for The joy that you long for, the intimacy you desire more than anything else is all found in Jesus Christ. But we have to choose to trust him, to place our faith in him. And when we do, we get everything. He calls us to give up everything that we have to gain all that he has. And it is the best exchange you and I could ever make. Will you trust him? Verse 6 of Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. For some of you right now, Jesus is calling you. For some, he's calling you to trust him for the very first time. And all he says is, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whoever calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Why don't you go ahead and bow your heads? And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've never come to the point where you've called upon the name of Jesus. I want to encourage you to do that right now. Simply say, Jesus, 
I need you. Jesus, I desire you. I don't have all the answers. I don't understand all of what this, uh, what, what the Bible says or what pastors talk about, but I know there's something missing in my life and I've tried with all my strength and it just doesn't work. And so I'm simply calling out, would you save me, Jesus? The promise of the scripture is that when we pray that, he will respond to that prayer and rescue us and give you the Holy Spirit to live within you. Would you pray that today? For others, God is saying, come. But his invitation is not for you to come for the relationship with him because you already have that. His invitation is for you to trust him with every aspect of your life, to make him the Lord of your life completely and to say, Lord, I want to pursue what you've called me to do. Would you ask the Lord to show you his calling for your life? And then today, would you choose to believe his word and say, Lord, I'm going to follow you based upon what you have promised. I'm going to trust and obey you in everything. We are to believe God's promises. We are to expect God to do great things. We're we're to dare to attempt great things for God. And ultimately, we are to give all that we are to Christ and then live in his victory. If we do those things, we inherit the promises of God and the power that they produce to give us a life that is full of joy and of purpose. God is always victorious. Will you trust him? Father God, help us to believe your word, to receive it, and then, Lord, to live it as an offering to you because ultimately that's what you're calling us to do. It's about our life reflecting who you truly are. So, Lord, I pray that as a church, as your church um, in its many different forms here in the city of Prague, would you, would you pour out your spirit upon this place? upon our Czech brothers and sisters, upon the other international churches, well, would you give us the courage to truly believe your, your word and to see you work in such a way that we see hundreds and thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ here in the Czech Republic. Lord, give us a vision. Give us a calling for each of our lives and give us the courage to follow you with all that we are and you will accomplish great things. Thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to believe it and live it. In Jesus' name, amen.